1941, Jorge Luis Borges wrote The Library of Babel, a short story about a secret, self-contained, and infinite library. The story's opening line, the universe, which others call the library, is composed of an indefinite and perhaps infinite number of hexagonal galleries with vast air shafts between, surrounded by upper railings, describes an entirely enclosed worldscape in which librarians live in individual hexagonal cells that are monastic in their barrenness and simplicity. The books within the library are an enigma as they cannot be read by the librarians. The language of the books is unknown, but the narrator believes that there must be somewhere in this vast world books that can be read not just some books that someone could read every possible permutation of every book that has ever been written or ever will be written what i'm saying is that borges's library is just about as unnatural as a library can get as we've talked about before unnatural narratives may resemble the actual world we live in but they obviously do not have to they can also confront us with physically or logically impossible scenarios or events. We know it's not real. We know it can't exist. But it still intrigues us and makes us want to know more. The most important thing to remember about the Library of Babel is that it's completely impossible. Or is it? In a 2016 article, author and coder Jonathan Basile wrote about Borges's library and his own attempts to recreate it on the internet. Basile's website, libraryofbabel.info, launched in 2015. According to Basile, if his version of the library were to be completed, it would contain every possible combination of 1,312,000 characters, including lowercase letters, space, comma, and period. Thus, it would contain every book that ever has been written and every book that ever could be, including every play, every song, every scientific paper, every legal decision, every constitution, every piece of scripture, and so on. So that's definitely pretty impossible, but there are more practical ways in which seemingly infinite libraries are being created online. Project Gutenberg and the Internet Archive have spent decades uploading texts to the internet to make them more accessible to a wider range of people. There has been a lot of conflict and controversy around these sites, but that's for another episode. What's important right now is that they are examples of what an infinite library might be. They help us to envision a world where open access to academic work is a right and not just a privilege. My name is Elizabeth Hedrick. I'm a PhD candidate in rhetoric at Texas Women's University, and you're listening to Anxiety in the Archives, my podcast dissertation. The library. So big it doesn't need a name. Just a great big the. In the last episode, we took a deeper look at A.J. Hackwith's Hell's Library series and Genevieve Cogman's Invisible Library series. We broke out some narrative and rhetorical theory and discussed why these books are such good tools for examining the endless possibilities within libraries and archives. In this episode, we're finally going to swing back around and tie those books to open access and the almost limitless knowledge that could be made available 
through open access initiatives. We're also going to have a very frank conversation about the man who has single-handedly driven much of the anti-open access discourse. But before we do that, we need to know a little bit more about where open access started. Budapest? Yeah, uh, Budapest. No, it's, it's Budapest. 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 Whatever. In December of 2001, a meeting was held in Budapest that was meant to accelerate progress in the international effort to make research articles in all academic fields freely available on the internet. It was at this meeting that the term open access was first coined. This meeting, held by the Open Society Institute, created the Budapest Open Access Initiative. It was clear, even as early as 2001, that the internet was quickly becoming an effective platform for the open sharing of scholarly ideas. The creators of the Budapest Initiative wanted to help bring about a more equitable and accessible world where knowledge was available without borders or boundaries. They believed that online access to journals should have no cost, but they also understood that journal production was not a costless venture. The Budapest Initiative saw open access as a goal that was attainable and not merely preferable or utopian. While acknowledging that this venture would not be easy, they were proposing a world where scholarly information was freely disseminated. At the same time, they supported authors' rights to control the integrity of their work and the right to be properly acknowledged and cited. Their vision for the future of scholarly communications was less post-apocalyptic hellscape of socialism and scholarly communications and more, let's all share our stuff so we can make better stuff. They were not suggesting that this be forced on anyone because really, that would have been antithetical to their entire purpose. Having said that, there was a certain charming naivete to their proposal. They couldn't have known what the internet was going to become or how quickly grifters would pick up on open access as a way to scam scholars and researchers. And they definitely didn't foresee the efforts by subscription journals to muddy the waters of open access by providing the most confusing and Byzantine policies that anyone has ever seen. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. The most common types of open access offered by subscription journals are gold, green, and hybrid. In GoldOA, the publisher makes all articles and related content available for free immediately on the journal's website after an author has paid an author processing charge. In such publications, articles are licensed for sharing and reuse by a Creative Commons or similar license. In GreenOA, an author is allowed to post a publisher-dictated version of the work to a website controlled by the author, the research institution that funded or hosted the work, or to an independent central open repository where people can download the work without paying. Hybrid open access journals contain a mixture of OA and closed access articles. A publisher following this model is partially funded by subscriptions and only provides open access for those individual articles for which the authors or research sponsor pay a publication fee. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. It's been two decades since the Budapest Open Access Initiative, and things are much less straightforward than when the whole process began. When the group reconvened in 2022, they stated that the intervening years had sharpened our understanding of certain systemic problems. 
The systemic problems they were referring to were very specifically about the nature of traditional scholarly publishing and the ways in which traditional publishing routes had changed in order to keep up with open access. The group's updated list of recommendations included ways in which to deal with the problems that were, and still are, obstructing progress in open access. It's almost as if there are people in corporations who just can't stand the thought of open and equitable knowledge dissemination, and so do their best to make it as difficult as possible to publish open access in subscription journals while still offering the option. Well, it wasn't an exercise in subtlety. I've mentioned before that I work with faculty publications on a daily basis. A regular part of my job is contacting academic publishers in order to verify their policies for article reuse. Most recently, I found myself needing to verify the policies for an article that had been published in 1992 and which has not been digitized by the journal. Requesting a scan of the published version and then dropping it into an open access repository would be valuable and sounds relatively easy. However, while the publisher did give me permission to deposit the article, I couldn't use the published version. I would only be allowed to deposit what's known as an author's accepted manuscript or postprint. This is the version of an article just prior to final publication. It has all of the revisions that resulted from the peer review process, but it won't have the journal logo, the pagination, etc. So at least we could still deposit something. The problem is that most people can't locate postprints for articles they wrote the year before, much less for an article written 30 years ago. So this article will never be available online. Realistically, this article is a dead reference that cannot be accessed by anyone. It is a piece of knowledge that is essentially lost to us. And it didn't have to be that way. So, what are we supposed to do? If knowledge is freedom, then we must be chain breakers. If there's one thing I learned from the specter of my predecessor, it is this. To be a librarian is to be in rebellion against time, against the world. The first thing we all need to understand is that scholars don't get paid to publish in academic journals and the people who do the peer reviewing also don't get paid. The only people making any money are the journal publishers, the largest of which are Springer, Taylor & Francis, Elsevier, Wiley, and Sage. They are the ones who are setting most of the rules for article reuse and distribution for articles that they didn't pay for. There are some university presses that are a bit more fair in that while they do put most articles behind a paywall, they don't always charge extortion level prices to access the material, but they do still charge for work that they didn't pay for. So why would an author want to line a publisher's pocket by paying for open access? Now, as we've discussed before, some open access journals do have an author processing charge, but sometimes an author processing charge is worth paying for a peer reviewed article that comes out much faster than it would with a traditional publication. However, open access journals have received a lot of bad press over the years, and so they're seen as less legitimate or even not legitimate at all among some in academia. The bad hype that open access journals have received in the decades since the Budapest Initiative is a little shocking sometimes, to be honest. There's a lot of virulence leveled at the concept 
And it can be hard to parse out just why people might be opposed to something that could help so many. If you'll recall, we talked about this in the first few episodes. We have the potential to create a library of infinite knowledge freely accessible to everyone who needs it or wants it. Endless wonder could be ours, but it isn't because some people just really don't like open access. Some of the older librarians had unsavory reputations. A lifetime among books didn't cultivate depravity or debauchery as much as a love of mind games and politics. And those games could turn dark. Yes, my friends, we have now come to the Jeffrey Beale of it all. I'd like to preface the following conversation by saying that I have no concrete information about any of Beale's ideologies outside of what he reveals in his articles and on his Twitter account. It would be unethical and inappropriate to claim supposition as actual fact. As such, my intention is to use Beale's words, pulled from his articles, as well as articles that analyze the rhetoric that Beale employs in his crusade against open access. I may be a little jokey on occasion, but I will not engage in ad hominem attacks. I don't need to. Beale's own words are damning enough. Oh, I love a good trash talking. It would not be an exaggeration to say that Beale has had a massive impact on scholarly perceptions of open access, largely through his website, Beale's List. Advertised as a list of questionable, scholarly, open access, standalone journals, it was there that he coined the term predatory publisher. (laughs) Beale began his list in 2008 and shut it down in 2017, saying only that he was forced to shut it down by his former employers due to threats and politics. His former employer, the University of Colorado, has denied this and stated they were supportive of his work. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle, but we'll likely never know. What we do know is that academia really listened to what Beale was saying, and it left a mark. In 2020, a pair of Polish researchers did a quantitative study about the effect that Beale, his list, and his use of the term predatory publisher has had on open access publishing. It may seem odd that one single academic librarian could have such a lasting effect, but he really did. When the authors began the study, they didn't even intentionally focus on Beale, but over time, they found that Beale was mentioned in over 80% of the 280 publications that they analyzed for study. At that point, you can't not switch your focus. A librarian's mission to seek out books for the library developed, after a few years, into an urge to find out everything that was going on around one. It wasn't even a personal curiosity. It was a simple, impersonal, uncontrollable need to know. One came to terms with it. So what exactly has Beale said about open access? Between 2012 and 2018, Beale wrote 34 articles about open access and predatory publishing. His main argument has always been that science is being placed in an untenable position because bad open access journals are publishing anything as long as they get paid for it. 
and he's not wrong to a certain extent, there are open access journals that are basically paper mills for academic articles. This is a known issue, but it's not true for all open access journals. Beale did make some attempts to delineate between the two when he first began his crusade, but that changed over time. We're all hopping on the internet to nitpick the scientific inaccuracies of Earth 2. In a 2012 article for Nature, Beale discussed the growth of the open access publishing industry, calling it a great idea that had been corrupted by predatory publishers and was in turn corrupting science. He also stated that open access supporters overlook the importance of validation in online publishing, that they promote access at the expense of quality, and that these actions have condoned the publication of unworthy scientific research. One year later, in an article published in an open access journal, Beale stated that the story those promoting OA tell is simple and convincing. Unfortunately, the story is incomplete, negligent, and full of bunk. I'm an academic crime fighter. I am here to set the record straight. Y'all have no idea how hard it was to keep a straight face while reading that quote. But to be fair, Beale didn't pull that out of thin air. John Bohannon actually called Beale's work academic crime fighting in his 2013 article, Who's Afraid of Peer Review, which was about, you guessed it, the illegitimacy of open access. We'll get more into Bohannon's article in future episodes, but for now, let's get back to the academic crime fighter. Hi, I'm Super Dan, and I have a crime to report. So, in that 2013 article, The Open Access Movement is Not Really About Open Access, Beale made a number of claims about open access and its supporters, but the one that I want to focus on right now is the idea that open access is not about infinite and unrestricted access to knowledge, but is actually a negative movement for the express purpose of eliminating private business. If you need a minute to take that in and fully process it, I'm here for you. Basically, Beale is trying to promote the idea that OA advocates are sitting in high-salaried, comfortable positions and demanding that for-profit scholarly journal publishers not be involved in scholarly publishing. In this article, Beale makes no distinctions between the different supporters of OA and instead generalizes about all of us in much the same way that he does with all open access journals. And y'all, I don't know who he's talking about exactly, but I am not sitting in a high salaried position. I can promise you that. What's especially interesting in this particular article is that Beale brought up the Budapest Initiative and attacked it as being funded by George Soros, who Beale claimed was known for his extreme left-wing views and the financing of their enactment as laws. Later in the article, he made the statement that open access mandates were set and enforced by an onerous cadre of Soros-funded European autocrats. Now, we're going to take a bit of a sidebar for a moment because these statements are problematic on many levels, not the least of which is that George Soros's name can often be found in the center of a number of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about Jewish-backed globalist cabals. Having said that, I am in no way making 
any statements about deeper meanings that might be behind the invocation of Soros's name in Beale's article. What I am saying is that utilizing George Soros in straw man arguments about the dangers of open and accessible knowledge is a very bad look. I think the lack of discretion is the least of his sins. In his 2018 article, Predatory Journals Exploit Structural Weaknesses in Scholarly Publishing, Beale took another wild swing and made the claim that open access is a type of colonialism, but instead of one country colonizing another, the open access movement represents a social movement invading an industry, in this case, the scholarly publishing industry. Once again, let's take a moment to let that really sink in, because it's a lot. A middle-aged white male academic librarian compared the open access movement to colonialism. I'm sorry, what? According to the aforementioned Polish study, Beale's primary tactic in delegitimizing open access is through five specific strategies that they identified within his writings. First, he constantly links open access and predatory publishing by using phrases like predatory open access publishing, so that the one will always be associated with the other in the minds of his readers. Second, he heaps praise on traditional publishers and the high quality of their output. Third, he tosses a lot of blame for predatory publishers at those of us who support open access. In the fourth strategy, Beale throws some very small bones to open access in an attempt to balance his criticism. And finally, he overgeneralizes the features that are in some open access journals as being a part of all open access journals, like author processing charges. All of these strategies constitute a very specific type of rhetorical tactic that Wayne Bivens Tatum has described as a reactionary perversity rhetoric in which Beale makes claims such as that open access takes people's freedom away. Beale never really tells his readers what specific freedoms they're losing, just that freedom has been lost. Essentially, Beale takes something as non-offensive as a university mandate that require faculty to deposit some version of their already published articles in the university repository and calls it Orwellian and says that a social movement that uses mandates is abusive and tantamount to academic slavery. And yes, just in case you were keeping track, Beale has pulled out both colonization and slavery in his crusade against open access. After discussing these alarming statements, Bivens Tatum comments that You'd think that researchers were forced to work for free or be in danger of having their faces chewed off by rats. Which is absolutely fair, given the hyperbolic nature of Beale's words. It's as if jackbooted open access thugs are hucking Molotov cocktails through the doors of traditional publishers, when really, all we want is to spread the academic wealth around so that scholars are on a more equal footing. It's not about anti-corporatism or socialism or communism. Communism is just red herring. It's about ensuring that knowledge doesn't get lost behind paywalls and that scholars aren't lost due to lack of access. It's about people helping each other to achieve their goals. And what better way to do that than an infinitely accessible library? A library is people. 
just as much as it is books and archives. You want to know the heart of a library? Don't look at its most famous books. Look at the people it serves, who it comforts, who it protects. The heart of a library may be its books, but its soul is its people. Humans and stories, impossible to separate the two. What do you think of when I say the word library? Uh, well, I guess the first thing I still think of is books, even though I was just walking to the bathroom um, this morning and I saw someone turning like the handle to open um, the shelving and I was like, that's the first time I've seen someone going through our stacks in a really long time. Um, I also think of the things that I do. So I think of copyright, I think of OER, I think of open access, I think of repositories. Because um, oftentimes when I tell people what I do, they have absolutely no idea what that really means. <laughs> Most people really don't understand what open access means or what it can do for scholars. It's a tangled and confusing subject, which is part of how Beale managed to make such an impact in the conversation. In 2017, Beale's former supervisor at the University of Denver wrote a response to Beale's article, What I Learned from Predatory Publishers. In the article, Shay Swagger discussed Beale's list and explained that it was unsurprising that researchers and librarians relied so heavily upon Beale's list as it alleviated the burden of having to learn how to evaluate whether a publisher or journal was predatory. Beale was in a position of assumed authority and he was doing the work so that scholars and researchers wouldn't have to. The inherent problem in this scenario is that it discouraged those same researchers and scholars from expanding their own information literacy. This could have been a teaching moment that led to greater understanding of open access, but that did not happen. You're on a need-to-know basis, and you don't need to know. Instead, Beale was allowed to stand on his qualifications as an experienced academic librarian in order to launch a crusade against open access. Sandy Iverson has stated that librarians are often seen as experts in determining the literature and other resources that their clientele need. Unfortunately, they do not often recognize the inherent bias at work in making these decisions. It's not unsurprising that some librarians would be opposed to the idea of just handing research to someone who hasn't paid for it and that their behavior and biases, because they are seen as experts, would have a trickle-down effect on the scholars and researchers who come to them for advice. That creates a space for people like Jeffrey Beale, who chose to place himself at the front of the movement to stop whatever scourge he imagines will come if open access becomes a widely accepted practice. It's been an effective crusade so far, which is why I'm here talking about this with you. I know it may feel like a stretch to tie infinite libraries together with anti-open access pundits, but it really isn't if we consider the simple fact that while the library might be infinite, that's only good if you can actually enter it. I suggest a full frontal assault with automated laser monkeys, scalpel mines, and acid.
Anxiety in the Archives is written, produced, and narrated by Elizabeth Hedrick. You can find episodes, transcripts, and references in the show notes or by visiting anxietyinthearchives.com. If you'd like to start a conversation with me about what you've heard, please feel free to find me on Blue Sky at Archive Anxiety. The theme song for Anxiety in the Archives is Mind Control by Half Cocked. This song and all other episode music can be found on freemusicarchive.org. The cover art for Anxiety in the Archives was created by Matt Davis. This project couldn't have been born without the support of my committee, Gretchen Busell, Ashley Bender, and Dundee Lackey, who willingly ventured into unknown ground with me. I'd like to thank everyone that allowed me to interview them for this episode, including Amanda, and everyone who lent their voices to this episode and brought life to the books that I love, including Shannon, Selena, Woody, and Dante. I'd also like to thank Harvest House for always providing a safe port in the middle of my academic storm. And finally, thank you for listening. Please join me next time as we begin our investigation into libraries and governmental control with Episode 7, The Library as State Authority, Part 1.